You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to First X First latest news podcast for 2023. So we're going to be looking at all the latest developments that have occurred through January and February, which normally pretty quiet, that we think advisors need to know about. Now, my name is Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me first up is Linda Bruce. G'day, Linda. Hey, Craig. How are you? Great. Excellent. Excellent. Now, we're going to jump straight in. Now, the first latest news kind of thing we want to talk about. It's actually quite an important one. And normally, as I said, over January, February, it's pretty quiet. You don't see too many things being announced. But uh, this is quite an important development that could impact certain clients and the strategies that advisors might be using them for them. And this pretty much just relates to the transfer balance cap. So, uh, Linda, what's happened with the transfer balance cap? What happened with the transfer balance cap? is linked to the inflation, the CPI. Mm-hmm. We just got to the December 2022 quarter CPI. Mm-hmm. It was quite high, which is not good for many, many things. But the positive thing came out of it is good for the client who wants to transfer more money from accumulation phase to pension phase. That's the general transfer balance cap that will be indexed from the current 1.7 million to 1.9 million on 1st July 2023. Okay, so going up by $200,000. So if we go back and think about it, transfer balance cap came in on the 1st of July 2017. Yep. Kicked off at $1.6 million. Yep. And we know that it does index by what you said is, is CPI inflation. Um, and so it took four years to go because it indexes up in, in tranches of $100,000. So That's it right. took four years to get from one6 to one7 but due to our high inflationary environment at the moment, caused by all sorts of different weird and wonderful things, um, it's now, what was it? It was 7.8% or something like that, That's which right. which yeah. is enough over the previous 12 months to push the uh, the cap increase, not just by $100,000, but by actually $200,000. Yeah, so it's going to $1.9 million. So that is a, an interesting side effect of a high inflation environment you know lots of people don't like it but mm. some people are actually going to get more money into the tax-free retirement phase because of this so well are you hey yeah yeah now um but saying that some people are going to benefit but not everyone's going to benefit are they so let's yeah. let's start off by looking at different people so if we got clients that um maybe age pension clients just mm. retiring going on to the age pension or self-funded retirees but nowhere near 1.9 or 1.7 or even 1.6 million in total uh, retirement savings, even including their spouse's super. So, you know, some, sometimes people's spouse pass away and they take a death benefit. Yep. So you add those two figures together. Nowhere near any of these figures. This is just purely academic okay. for them. Yep. Yeah. Has no real impact. But what if we've already started a retirement phase income stream previously? What's the impact for these guys? Yeah, so there is a difference between the general cap and the personal transfer balance cap. Mm-hmm. So the personal transfer balance cap is linked to the general cap 
at the time the client start to have a transfer balance account. So for example, client commenced the pension back in 1718 financial year mm -hmm. when the general cap was 1.6 million and they have a fully utilized 1.6 million. Mm -hmm. Or they commenced the uh, pension in the current financial year where the cap is 1.7 million, the general cap is 1.7 million, then their personal cap would be 1.7 million. So they have utilized fully utilized their personal cap. So that, that comes back to these proportional indexation rules, doesn't it? Yeah. So what we're essentially saying there is that um, your cap reverts to the general cap in yeah. the year you first start your retirement phase income stream. That's and right. then when it indexes in future, mm. you get a proportional index uh, percentage yeah. or you get a proportion of that indexation amount based on your, your unused, unused cap percentage. Cap. So if I what you're saying there is if I've already commenced a, a pension between 1 July 2017 and 30 June 2021, 21, yep. then for 1.6 million, then my unused cap percentage is zero. zero. So therefore my proportional share of this indexation increase is zero. zero. So yep. I'm stuck at 1.6 million. Same if I started a pension for $1.7 million. Yep between the 1st of July 2021 and up to 30 June 2023. 2023, yeah. right? Now, what about if I've commenced a pension not for, let's say, $1.6 or $1.7 million, yeah. I've commenced it for, let's say, half of one of those figures, depending on when I retired and commenced a pension. So yeah. then I'm entitled to half of that index. So let's say I've used 50%. Um, then I'm going to get 50% of the indexation amount. So in that situation, I am seeing an increase, but it's not necessarily by the full $200,000 figure. It's your unused cap percentage. Right. So taking all of that into account, if I've got a client that's actually thinking about retiring mm. before 30 June. Yep. They never what, had a retirement phase. And they've never had yep. a retirement phase income stream before. Mm. What, what do we need to think about there? Well, the... They might be commencing a pension before 30th June, mm -hmm. or they might be commencing a pension on or after 1st July 23. Now the timing is really important here, isn't it? As we mentioned, the client's personal cap is linked to the general cap mm -hmm. at that particular point in time in that financial year. So if a client retired before 30th June and commenced the pension before 30th June, they have $1.7 million personal capital to work with. Mm -hmm. In comparison, if they can just defer the commencement a bit to 1st July 20th, 2023 or yep. later, yep. they've got, suddenly, they've got a $1.9 million cap to work with. Yeah, so essentially, if I start today, Come one July, I could potentially get zero indexation, depending on if I'm starting a pension for one, exactly $1.7 million, or I'm only getting part of that $200,000 increase. But if I delay to commence my first retirement phase income stream until one July into the new financial year, then I get that full benefit of the full $200,000 indexation. So I suppose in that situation, I'm now just comparing... Well, if I retire today, I get the benefit of converting all of my savings into the tax-free retirement phase compared to continuing to hold it in the accumulation phase. 15% right? tax, but then I'm, com I'm comparing that relative disadvantage from holding off by the fact that I potentially get up to $200,000 extra into retirement phase for a much longer period. That's so right. yeah. obviously, as I get closer to 30 June, um, 
the more you know, incentive to the more incentive to hang off, right? So yeah, so they're obviously they're the kinds of things we need to think about now. In terms of transfer balance cap indexation, we do have a podcast that looks at specifically this issue, and that's come out in this same month. So myself and Tim Sanderson have done that. And we'll also have an article coming out at some point that looks at this in great detail and looks at helps people to actually go through and calculate that proportional indexation because it actually is really kind of we've really simplified it here, but it is really is quite complex. complex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's all good news. But this is this change is it's not just a transfer balance cap that this impacts upon, is it? No, it's not. More good news for an advisor and a client mm-hmm. who wants to put additional amount to super or do recontribution strategy. No. So we are familiar with $1.7 million or more as a total super balance. And that means their non-concessional cap for the current financial year is zero, is, is zero right? Yeah. Yeah. But that threshold is actually linked to the general transparency cap. Oh. And when the general cap got an index 1.9 million, that 1.7 million we mentioned earlier becomes 1.9 million. Okay, so what that means is if I've got a client that's got a balance, total super balance somewhere between 1.7 and 1.9, all the way up to 30 June, mm, they can't make they a can't. non-concessional contribution because their cap is zero. But yep. on 1st of July... They may be able to make contributions. They, they may now be able to make contributions again. Now, also, what about those those bring forward rules. Yeah. So there's thresholds there. There, I assume they're going up as well. They'll go, go up as well. Good news. So uh, let's just refresh the rules quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the current financial year, to be able to use the three bring forward provision, mm-hmm. their previous 30 student total super balance must be under 1.48 million. Mm-hmm. Now that one. 1.48 million will be increased by $200,000 million. Yeah. So that a two year bring forward the thresholds will also be increased uh, by $200,000. Right. Uh, so we're looking at uh, between 1.68 million, uh, but less than 1.79 million, um, the client can make $220,000. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned it before. I suppose that the important thing here is obviously for those clients, um, they're going to be able to make non-concessional contributions again, depending on the total super balance on, yeah. on 30 June. Um, now, remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we got the work test being removed. And we we're yeah. talking to a lot of people about the ability for people between 67 and 74, including up to 28 days after the end of the month, they turned 20, 75, um, that they could do super top-up strategies as well as potentially recontribution strategies to convert that taxable across into tax-free. Um, but one of the warnings we were saying to people is watch out for total super balance, right? Because if you're up and over $1.7 million, your non-concessional cap is zero. So you can't do super top-up and you can't do recontribution because you can pull the money out, but you can't put it back in, right? Now, obviously, in this situation, those clients in, you know, up above 1.7, now you can potentially think about this for the, for those clients. For the next financial year. For the next financial year. Okay. Now, the the other thing we do need to note here, though, is this is all dependent on the current legislation staying exactly as it is. That's right. Uh, And we do have a federal budget, as we do every year in May. Um, So there is always the legislative risk here that we may see someone, you know, the new government decide that they're going to somehow... Fiddle with the rules. Uh, we're not saying that they're going to, but there's always legislative risk with with anything. Um, so that would be a consideration. If we get a client that's sitting there deciding, okay, I'm going to defer starting my pension 
until the 1st of July and then along comes May uh, and they freeze the, the transfer balance cap where it currently is at $1.7 million. So I suppose if I'm kind of recommending to my client to think about deferring, that would also be another risk to, to make them aware of that, you know, this is all based on current legislation and if the legislation changes in some way um, to freeze it or um, somehow change those rules, then we need to take that into into consideration. And also, Craig, all the thresholds, total super balance thresholds we mentioned earlier, the Mm 1.9, 1.68 million, 1.79 million, Mm -hmm. it's all based on the assumption that the wage is not increasing uh, enough to the level that that will increase non-concessional contribution cap, Uh, right? Yeah, Yeah, so our analysis showed uh, most likely the NCC cap is not going up, uh, we will be getting the confirmation by the end of this month. Yeah. So watch this space. We'll, we'll know more then. Also, yeah. I think some of these, um, you know, things like co-contribution, and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's also impacted here as well, isn't yeah. it? Although I can't imagine, you know, too many people with 1.8 million people going after the co-contribution, but, but that yeah. is also uh, relevant to it. Also, yeah. the, the defined benefit income cap, that's also being impacted by this as well, isn't it? It, it is. The, the currently is $106,250. That will go up to $118,750. Okay, terrific. All right, well, thanks, Linda. Now, I suppose the next thing I, I want to talk about, talking about caps, is, and it's, this has been in the news a bit lately, is this concept that people should be limited to the total amount that they can have in superannuation, and that is across both the pension and accumulation phases. So you might have seen this mentioned in the press where there, and look, you know, we don't know whether this will come in. It's all proposed at this stage or being discussed. I know a, a couple of industry associations are also suggesting that there should should be some sort of upper limit on the total amount you can have in superannuation. I think some of the, the statistics thrown, being thrown around is that there's one self-managed super fund out there with $400 million in it. And uh, is that really all about retirement savings anymore or is it just about concessional taxation environment? So there, there does seem to be this kind of groundswell building to say that there should be um, some sort of limit on the total amount you can hold in the concessionally taxed superannuation environment in both super and pension combined. Now, um, some of the suggestions are that that should be $5 million. I've seen other suggestions being $2 million. If the government does decide to to adopt this, they're obviously going to have to come up with some sort of limit. Now, um, how that would be done, we, we don't really know. Thinking about it, they could simply say, right, as at an effective date, we're going to cut it, let's say, at $5 million as an example, and they would say anything over and above that you need to remove from the superannuation environment, regardless of the preservation status of those benefits, uh, maybe within 12 months. Right? Um, that would be one way to do it. The other way to do it might be to say, okay, well, we're going to look at your balance at this certain date, and anything over and above that we're going to deem an, you know, an investment return on And then, you know, using the current excess, you know, contributions tax system and all that sort of stuff. So all the all the processes and systems are already in place to achieve this. And then to say, okay, well, let's say you've got eight million dollars. The cap is five million dollars. We're going to say you've got excess there of three million. We're going to deem that at a certain rate of return, whatever it is. And then maybe go and include that deemed rate of return in the member's tax return and maybe tax it at their marginal tax rate. I've seen other people talk about the top marginal tax rate. Um, probably in that situation, you'd want to take into account a tax offset because you don't want double taxation. But we do need to kind of be conscious that this is being discussed. I'm not saying it's absolutely going to come in, but uh, I think it's important to 
at least put it on the radar. And for your clients, if you've got clients up in these very high levels, um, you know, identify who those clients are and maybe think about how you actually make them aware that this is potentially an issue that may need to be addressed um, on or after the next federal budget or subsequent to that. So that's another important issue that we need to be aware of. Now, moving on now, we're going to now talk to Kim. G'day, Kim. Hi, Craig. Okay, we're now moving on to kind of an interesting development regarding the Centrelink Home Equity Access Scheme, previously known as the Pension Loan Scheme, I think. Yep, that's right. Okay. Now, I understand that our friends at ASIC have kind of said some stuff about this, which implies that maybe it's not a credit product anymore and therefore you don't need a credit license to actually be able to recommend this. Can you let us know what's happened here? Yeah, this is really interesting. So um, for a long time, um, it's been pretty widely understood that uh, financial advisors required a credit license um, to be able to provide advice on the Home Equity Access Scheme um, because it had very similar characteristics to a reverse mortgage. Mm. It was through the government, of course, but, yep. um, but it had very similar characteristics. And so, um, you know, we, we most people in the industry thought that you required a credit licence to be able to provide advice regarding the scheme. Um, however, um, a financial advisor uh, wrote to their local MP asking whether that was in fact the case, whether you required a credit licence in that situation. <laughs> Can you imagine and, the local um, MP going, oh, yeah. yes, I've, I've got to consider <laughs> you on this. I'm not quite sure. And, um, and so the MP forwarded on to ASIC. Right. Um, and then ASIC provided a response directly to that particular financial advisor, which actually indicated that a credit licence was not required to provide um, advice on the Home Equity Access Scheme. And the reason they gave was that it wasn't considered to be a credit contract under the National Credit Act, but rather a debt that was owed under the Social Security Act. So it didn't come under that definition of something that requires a credit licence. Right. So, wow, that's kind of interesting on a, on a couple of levels. First of all, obviously, this potentially means an advisor prior to, uh, sorry, not prior to, despite previous advice to the industry that these things are credit contracts, so therefore you'd need a credit licence to be able to talk to your clients about this, um, potentially means that these clients, these advisors, advisors can go and talk to their clients about, you know, the home equity access scheme without fear of, being pinged for not having a credit license. Mm -hmm. I would imagine you would probably want to check with your licensee in relation to that though, because yes. at the end of the day, what we're dealing with here is a letter. Yes, we a, just have a letter. A letter to one advisor yes. um, that really isn't that binding. Well, no, it's not really a, a, an official kind of you know document that you can look up on the ASIC website or anything. It's uh, it's just a particular letter. So um, I think it's very important that advisors go and talk to their licensees about um, whether their what the licensee's policy is on providing um, advice on the home equity access scheme. I mean, the licensee's got a number of things to consider. Like, do they need to compare it to alternative products such as reverse mortgages? Um, and so you know. Do they require a credit license to do that? You know, it's um it's a complicated matter. So mm. definitely something to chat to your licensee about before you um go ahead and provide advice on that. And and saying all this, I, I think potentially this is a really good outcome because if you've got clients that, you know, they do need more retirement income and they've got no other way of funding it, 
um, then, you know, why shouldn't an advisor be able to talk to a client about utilising this particular government scheme without needing to have a credit licence? It, it does seem like it's a logical outcome. It's just at the moment we're just relying on a letter. It would be great if HACCP came out with something a bit more binding. Yeah, and, and to be very clear on, you know, what needs to be considered when you're providing that advice. But, yeah, I am, I am agree with you. It yeah. would be a good outcome. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. Now, now moving on to one of my favourite topics being aged care. Now, I understand that the interest rate that the government sets in relation to aged care fees increased on the 1st of January to 7.06% per annum. Now, could you... Give us a run-through of how this potentially impacts aged care clients. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as you know, every quarter um, the government set interest rate called the maximum permissible interest rate or MPIR um, is recalculated every quarter. And it's a really important interest rate when you're looking at aged care fees um, because it it, it um, determines two very important aged care accommodation payments. Now, the, the interest rate is set at the date that the client enters the aged care facility, um, and it's used to determine, firstly, um, the amount of daily accommodation payments or DAP that apply when a person enters aged care and, you know, they're, they're um, liable to pay an accommodation payment, but they choose not to pay it as a lump sum. They pay um, you know, some or all of it as, as DAP payments, daily accommodation payments, rather than that lump sum. And that that those DAP payments are determined by this interest rate, which is pretty high now, 7.06%. Mm. Um, so that higher interest rate is, you know, causing, you know, a significant increase to the amount that they have to pay in DAP payments. Yeah. Is there, and what else is the MPIR used for? Is there anything else? Yeah, it's also used for low means residents. So if you have a client who's entering aged care and they're, you know, means tested amount is below the threshold, which makes them a low means resident, uh, then they may be asked to pay an accommodation contribution. And when you're looking at accommodation contributions, if they decide to pay some or all of that as a lump sum, they they calculate this amount called the RAC or the refundable accommodation contribution. And that calculation also uses this interest rate of mm. 7.06%. Um, but it's actually interesting that it could actually benefit those clients because um, the bigger the interest rate, the smaller the lump sum rack payment is. So um, it actually could benefit um, some low means residents by having to pay a lower lump sum rack payment. Okay, so we're seeing an increase here, but that could potentially result in different outcomes for different people, right? Yeah. So people who pay an accommodation payment as a DAP pay more. Yep. Whereas low mean residents who pay their accommodation contribution as a lump sum pay less. Yes. Okay, all right, I've got that. Right, for a change. Well done. My favourite topic. Um, Now, okay, thanks for that. I I guess the interest rate there has increased in line with increases in other interest rates? Yeah, that's right. It's actually set at the general interest charge less 3%. So when that general interest charge um, increases, that that MPIR, um, the aged care interest rate also increases. All right. That's what it's pegged at. All right, terrific. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Craig. All right. Now, I think we'll just finish up with uh, just talking about Nalei and Nali. Now, I'm not being all, you know, Hawaii Five-O. Did they used to say Nali in Hawaii Five-O? No, I don't know. Um, but otherwise known as non-arms linked income and non-arms linked expenses. Now, there was um, some changes to the tax rules. So non-arms linked income... What that's about, it's it's income of a, a superannuation fund or compliance superannuation fund that's actually taxed at the top 
rate rather than the concessional rate. And where that top rate kicks in is where the fund has earned income that's higher than it otherwise should be. So essentially what people are trying to do is to redirect income that should be taxed at a person's marginal rate or maybe the corporate rate into the superannuation environment artificially. Um, and where that's picked up, the the tax rules seek to penalise that by taxing it at the top marginal rate. Now, the interesting thing there is a couple of years ago, what the government did is actually change the rules to say that even, you know, obviously it'll apply where you earn income more than the, the super fund should otherwise be earning if it was, you know, transacting on, a, on an arm's length basis. But they also said that if the fund incurs an expense that is lower, including zero, than it should otherwise be, um, because maybe they're engaging a service of a related party and that related party doesn't charge the fund for that service. That means that the fund's overall income is now going to be higher than it otherwise should be because they should have incurred a liability that they didn't because of this related party transaction kind of stuff going on. And what they said is that where you have a non-arm's length expense that relates to a particular asset, all of the income coming off that asset now will be non-arms length income and taxed at 45%. And what they also said quite controversially was that where you have a general fund expense, so let's just say you've got some administrative administration fees that you know maybe the members, uh, an accountant or something like that, and doing their own administration and they haven't charged the fund for that administration and you could consider that they weren't acting as a trustee in that situation that uh, that would also now be a non-arms length expense in relation to the fund in general, which would then taint all of the income in that particular year. So a, a potentially disastrous outcome. Now, that was, as I said, quite controversial and it kicked off a real storm and the government came out just before the election and said uh, these rules aren't working as intended and they, they committed to actually review. Now, obviously, we saw, saw a change in government and that change in government also committed to have a look at these rules. And now what we've got is a consultation paper, right? Now, the interesting thing about these rules was they were going to impact across all fund types, not just self-managed super funds, which is probably where you normally see non-arms length income and non-arms length expenses but all fund types. So you had large funds very, very unhappy about these rules because they were actually quite complex and you would have to go and look at every transaction. And so that was part of the reason I think that you saw the government agree to look at this because across the industry, all sides of superannuation went to government and said, these rules need to be fixed. And so what they've done is put out a consultation paper. And the interesting thing is that the government said or Treasury has said, we propose that these rules won't apply to large funds. Great. Hip, hip, hooray. Mm -hmm. um, but for self-managed super funds, slightly different. So what they're saying there is the proposal is that you would look at the, um, the level of the expense. So let's say $500. Uh, it should have been. $1,000, so there's a $500 underpayment. So what you then do is multiply that underpayment by five to give you 2,500, and then you would tax that 2,500 at 45%. So much better when you're looking at, and this does relate only to the general fund expenses. If you've got non-arms length expense relates to a specific asset, no, that's all of the income being taxed at 45%. But what they're proposing here is for these general fund expenses, because it was quite hard to figure it out. Yes, okay, we acknowledge the complexity here. Um, so what we'll do is just look at the level of the underpayment, multiply it by five. Why five? 
we don't know. It seems to have just seems like a good good number to choose. Um, and why only self-managed super funds? Well, you will probably see the SNSF Association, et cetera, point out that you shouldn't have differential treatment of superannuation funds from a taxation perspective, but you probably see the large funds saying, ah, no, this is a great result. We're happy with this. Um, so it is all consultation at this stage. So we do need to wait and see. So all that consultation will go back into Treasury uh, and they will consider that consultation. And then we're likely probably to see a bill come out maybe before 30 June. So they'll probably talk about this in the federal budget as well. So we have to wait and see. Now, I think that pretty much wraps it up for the afternoon. Thanks, Kimberly. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventus Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.